0: Good Good evening, wherever you may be. This is Edward Song, and I am an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. I'm also one of the hosts of the City of Man podcast, but this is not the City of Man podcast. I'm pleased to welcome everybody to the latest episode of Core Curriculum, the Christian Humanist Radio Network's continuing series on the core texts of the Western canon. Today, we are discussing Book 6 of Plato's Republic. And joining me today, towards that end, is Jay Eldred, who teaches high school history in New Bern, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife, Crystal. Jay has been a not-infrequent guest or co-host on the Sectarian Review Show, and uh, we're I'm pleased to have you with, with me today, Jay. Great to be here. Great. Uh, also with me is Nathan Gilmore. G- uh, Nathan is one of the original three founders of the network he is a professor of english at emmanuel college in franklin springs georgia where he teaches writing literature philosophy theology and other ways to avoiding specialties he lives in athens georgia with his wife mary and kids micah and miriam welcome to you nathan
1: thank you ed it's good to be here
0: now you and i have recorded a couple times maybe
1: you know, Ed, I think our our episode in this series on the Republic is the first time we have recorded. Although, oh, is that just although, the first time? Yeah, one? we okay. we hung out in Los Angeles together. So, yes, I, I think honestly uh, that was cooler than recording a podcast anyway.
0: <clears throat> well, that's nice of you to say. The feelings are mutual. And Jay, uh, you. Have you and I ever recorded maybe a Halloween episode, or maybe not?
2: I think we might have recorded a Halloween episode before, because this is not the first time that we've talked with each other, and that's the only other other time I can think that we would have corresponded like that.
0: Yeah, okay, so that would have been more than a year ago. Right. But you and I, as far as I know, are the resident marathoners in yes. the Christian Humanist Radio Network.
2: Yes, we are. Um I just finished my fifth back in November and for whatever reason decided that it would be a good idea to do another one in March. So we'll see how it goes. I
0: I strongly affirm that. I am of the belief that it takes so much work to train for marathons that the thing really to do is train and then just to keep running them so you basically don't have to ever train anymore. (laughs) But speaking of marathons... Um, Today, we are discussing book six of The Republic. Faithful listeners of the series will remember that in book five of The Republic, Socrates and others are discussing the rearing of children in the happy city. And he begins, they begin a discussion of how and why philosophers need to be the rulers of the city. And so now here in book six, we're continuing that discussion of philosopher kings Philosophers as lovers of wisdom are the most qualified people to rule the city, and because philosophers love truth, they are most virtuous and therefore most capable to rule. Sadly, Socrates and the others agree that they don't know many philosophers who they actually would describe that way, and then they have a discussion of why that is, and also why the few truly virtuous philosophers who they know are deemed useless by their societies, sadly. And then at, towards the end of book six, they take up a discussion of the form of the good as that is the most important thing to be known. And they be- begin a discussion of it that will continue into the next book. But uh, here anyway, Socrates deploys two well-known analogies, that of the sun and the line, to try to illuminate the nature of the good. So that's your quick little overview of book six. But then I thought we would discuss jump in and begin by having a little discussion about what Socrates says about philosophers in general and their role in ruling the the Calypolis, that happy city. Um. So can I just ask generally and see if people have thoughts on this? P- part of it is for me is that in, in some ways the... Uh, you know, the English word philosopher carries with it certain kinds of connotations. I have to say that the the thing that I loathe more than anything else is like uh, getting on, on on an airplane and you say hello to the person next to you. And uh, I'm the kind of person that likes to disappear into my own little special world. But before I do that, it's it's usually exchanging the usual pleasantries. And then they ask me what I do and I have to say that I'm a philosopher, which is just the worst thing in the world. Um, But uh, Socrates certainly means something very specific about what it is that a philosopher is. So do you guys have thoughts on Socrates' account of what it is that makes a philosopher a philosopher?
1: Well, one inter- bleh, interesting thing, Ed, is that even in the Greek here, there seems to be some equivocation on what that noun means, because uh, I believe he's talking to Glaucon in Book 6, uh Glocken, I mean, is very ready to say that, well, we know philosophers and a lot of them are just utterly rotten and the rest are useless, whereas mm-hmm. Socrates, mm-hmm. I mean, seems to mean... I know a few of them, you know, well, <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> whereas Socrates seems to mean uh, not necessarily someone who is part of a visible guild uh, so much as someone who has a certain moral disposition, right? So, yeah. I mean, it would be yeah. as if uh, in, you know, modern so- society... Well, no, 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 we don't have to speculate here. Uh, You know, I mean, if if someone said that I am a uh, justice for the state of Georgia, you know, we would say, okay, you're a person who goes to court and wears a robe, not necessarily that you are someone who exhibits the virtue called justice, although we would hope that you would, right? And I think it's an analogous thing going on here. What Socrates has in mind is people who are actually exhibiting philosophy, that friendship with wisdom. Uh, whereas, you know, Glocken seems to mean the people who are part of this guild that teach people rhetoric and disputation and things like that. Jay, I mean, do you see that equivocation here, or am I overreading
2: this? No, I think in some ways you're right. I know that when I was reading it, it almost reminded me of almost like a no-true Scotsman argument where he is saying that they might call themselves philosophers, but they're not really philosophers because they don't have the right mindset or the right qualities that he ascribes to them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we might say he's interested in genuine philosophers or true philosophers, not just people whose business cards say "philosopher" on them, as mine does. <laughs> um, one of the uh, one of the interesting things to me on the account is that you know we tend to think of philosophers in that way as people who are part of a certain guild or members of a profession. Um, Or if we think about their personal qualities, we think of of a certain kind of intelligence or facility with um, abstract thinking. Um, I think we also tend to think of them as useless. We'll get to that in a second. Apparently, that stereotype of philosophers isn't unique to the 21st century. But then, but then equally, it's not just these intellectual abilities, as you all have been saying. It is, um, they are the most virtuous of persons. They possess a certain kind of character. And that character is just as important as the intellectual ability to to discern the true nature of things.
1: Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I, I've, I'm a little bit ashamed of myself I didn't think about this before we started recording, but I mean, I think it is analogous to... Uh, you know, if someone would complain that, you know, the, the Supreme Court justices in California were uniformly corrupt, right, uh, I think mm-hmm. Socrates might hear that as a sort of uh, contradiction, uh, if not utter nonsense, right? You know, I mean, how could they be justices and also unjust? Yeah. And I think that's, I, you know, I think that moral uh, disposition is, is precisely what's on the table here. And and you know I I've heard the no true Scotsman objection to this part of Republic, and I think that that only works if we're talking about you know true philosophers rather than two different concepts of philosopher. And 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 Ed, I feel like we talked about this when we when we did book one that we've got a uh, well, and I, I'm I'm going to blow the distinction here, Ed. But instead of having two conceptions of philosopher, we have two entirely distinct concepts of philosopher
0: yeah that's yeah that's that's right that's right and certainly i mean you know the all of well chap or book 5 and book 6 are i mean i mean he well appreciates the distinction between somebody who's out there teaching people sophists and the kind of person that he's that he's talking about real philosophers Um, who are very few and far between, as we'll get to Mm -hmm. in a second. One of the things that's interesting to me here, or that these these two qualities, you know, intellectual, well, intellectual virtue, we can say. Philosophers need to have intellectual virtue. They also need to have moral virtue. I think those two things, we don't necessarily think of them going together. But for Socrates, not only do they go together they they have to go together that the person who's truly gifted in the intellectual way will also necessarily be more virtuous um which which is counterintuitive i think for us and and gets at some of the um unusual ways that plato socrates think about the relationship between knowledge and virtue
1: and Jay, I'm, I'm interested in something that you wrote. We, uh, we share a, a document together as we're planning these episodes, and you talked about this uh, this life of reflection actually unbalancing someone. What, what, what should be that balance that you're... Uh, I, and, and again, I think that you're attributing this to another school of thought that's not Plato, right? I mean,
2: Correct. What,
1: what would be that balance uh, if it's not the life of reflection?
2: Well, I'm not sure what it would be. Um, I do not claim to be a philosopher, but I found it interesting in all of his, his claims of moderation for the philosopher that they would need to constantly be reflecting on their own life. And would, would not that logically come to a conclusion that they are focused on themselves and not others or on themselves and not the city? Or are they focused on themselves and their actions in, in the polis? I wasn't quite sure how to read that. It was just a just a thought.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because I I I do remember. Actually, let me say what I don't remember first. I don't remember if it was just before this section or just after this section. Uh there's the extended discussion of mathematical education and it's all very much related to these are the things that would make for a good ruler specifically, right? A good guardian to use the the noun that's usually in English translations. So I, I think that Socrates would say that by strengthening those dispositions and those capacities that make you a self-reflective person, you're going to simultaneously make yourself a better ruler of a city because you're also a good ruler of the soul, and those two things are always analogous.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: But the philosophers are certainly an unusual, rare bunch Um they're rare because these twin intellectual and moral qualities uh, are themselves rare. And the few people that possess these qualities get end up getting corrupted and tempted away to more worldly pursuits. Socrates tells us that people pe- people notice their abilities and then they try to win their attention so that they can use them. They tempt them away with honor and money. Mm-hmm and then um the few people who genuinely possess the these twin intellectual and moral virtues uh they end up being seen as as useless uh that kind of gets at the imbalance thing that you were talking about in some ways Jay like okay they there's they're certainly seen as being strange strange fish um that was kind of interesting to me and um I think we're still tempted to see philosophers, and I should say, philosophers in the Greek. I think everyone knows this. Just means uh, lover of wisdom. Here, it it certainly refers to a specific kind of intellectual discipline and in practice. But you know, for our purposes, uh, it's it's not just people who who do what I do. Um, it's it's people who are in the who are in the who are in the knowledge business? Who are pursuing knowledge, right? Um, but but I think we're still tempted to see such people as being useless. Um, I was thinking about um, I don't know if you guys know that Indigo Girls song "Closer to Fine." I I saw that in
1: the notes, Ed, and I was hoping you could explain it because I don't know that
0: track. Do you, well? Do you know the Indigo
1: Girls? I'm I'm aware of the Indigo Girls. Yes, I just don't
0: know that track. Yeah that that uh, I was I was thinking of this. Um, but uh i think closer to fine was the indigo girls very first single it was like their big hit but there's a but there's a, i mean she's she's uh kind of telling the story of her biography and there's a line in there when she says that she she went and i guess she's talking about being in college and she says uh what does she say i went to see the doctor of philosophy with a poster of rasputin and a beard down to his knees he never did marry nor see a b grade m- movie he graded my performance. He said he could see through me. And nice. then she goes, and 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 talks about um. What's the next line? I um. Well, she got her degree and was free, so you know. So she like explored this way of learning, but found it to be lacking. But like, there's this stereotype of the doctor of philosophy, who never did marry or see a, a B grade movie. They are cloistered off, pondering obscurities. Um. I mean that kind of that kind of gets at the thing that you you were talking about, I think, Jay, about imbalance, um maybe not because of their constant need for inward reflection, but actually their their constant need for outward reflection for like puzzling over these things which um occupy the whole of of their attention um Socrates is gonna tell a different story about why we tend to see them as being useless. Um, but I'm just kind of interested in like why we're tempted to see the philosopher as useless. Um, whether there's something about the academic f- or philosophical disposition that pulls people into obscurities, or or whether Socrates is right in that we're only tempted to see them as being useless. Because of the way that the culture t- trains us and prejudices us.
1: Well, I, Ed, I I think our listeners might benefit if we can hear Plato's version of it, and then we can kind of critique that or agree with it once we've got that on the, out on the table. So, does one of you want to give us the parable of the ship ca- uh, the ship owner? Because I think that's a uh, kind of the central image for Plato.
2: I would if I could find it. There we go. So, do you want? like just the rundown of the parable. Yeah, yeah, just give us the high points. Okay, yeah, yeah, so the high points. The, yeah. The idea was that um in Plato or sorry, Socrates mind that the city was like a ship with the philosopher as a pilot and he's good at what he does, but because of the life that he has spent in building up his qualities, he might not be the 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 uh, most physically fit. Or the strongest around, and so people start to wonder, you know, is he really up to the task? Why does he get to be in charge? That kind of a thing, and so just as sailors on a ship might mutiny against an aged captain, so do the people of the city. Um, then, you know, competition gets ruthless. You've gotten rid of, you've gotten rid of the captain. You have a power vacuum. Who's going to make it to the top? And eventually, you have a strong man make it to. Uh, make it to the top to lead the city. And he might not be bad necessarily. You know, he'd, um, going back to the ship, he doesn't sink the ship, he doesn't run it aground, but he doesn't do a good job either. And soon they find themselves into more difficulties than they had before because they don't understand the nuances of, of what the philosopher's been doing. Right, and, yeah. j-
1: and just to add a couple details to that, the strong man that Jay just narrated uh, is one who doesn't see very well and doesn't hear very well, so you have to get right up in his ear uh, to actually make him uh, exert his strength. So, I mean, uh, in, in my mind, and you guys can correct this if I'm reading it wrong, uh, this is an allegory about democracy, right? Because the, the power of the vote, so to speak, uh, only responds if you are pandering to it. Uh, it can't really see anything resembling a big picture, uh, but it's the people who are the best talkers rather than the best thinkers that tend to get uh, the attention of the masses. I mean, is that is that a decent reading of that allegory?
0: Yeah, I mean, they come to power because they're strong, and they are, in fact, good at getting things done. But they have no knowledge of that which is true and good and beautiful and just. So they don't know how to navigate. They know how to sail, I guess you could say, but they don't know how to navigate. Right,
1: right, right. and this harks back to uh, Socrates' definition of wisdom as the ability to see how the parts of the big picture fit together, right? Uh, The masses uh, are only able to see very short distances, unlike the navigator who actually orients himself to the eternal stars, right? So the navigator, by definition uh draws orientation or derives orientation from the largest possible picture in this parable, whereas the strong man literally can't even see all of the people there. Uh so I mean it it is a, a study in opposites. One of them is massively powerful, uh whereas the other one is powerless. One of them is uh oriented towards the largest possible picture, the other one oriented towards the smallest possible picture. And, you know, the problem is that the person who, who actually studies the big picture uh, gets relegated to uselessness uh, because of this structure, right? Because he's not as ready and not as willing, and frankly not as able to convince the strongman to do what the navigator wants the strongman to do.
0: Right, and yeah, and then this whole culture arises in which the the learnedness of the philosopher isn't appreciated, and so the society grows to see him or her as being useless, um, unnecessary, obscure. So, so that's the so that's the story that Socrates or Plato tells about about. The philosopher um but but it's interesting to me because yeah so you know is is that right um or are there other things about the philosophical disposition that pull them away from from practical things
1: take a swing at that jay
2: I'm trying to wrap my head around the question. I would be inclined to agree with it. When I was reading this, the parable, I was thinking more of the uh, populist movements of the late 1800s, early 1900s, and maybe even now. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the same arguments that I either read about in history or read in the news today are the same ones that that uh, Socrates or Plato is making here in book six. So Personally, I would go with the fact that it's right.
1: Right. I mean, I I think I I definitely hear echoes, Jay, of the climate scientists complaining that none of the politicians want to know what climate scientists have to think. Uh, The only people they listen to are the slick-talking energy company Mm -hmm. executives.
0: Yeah, that's right. Who, Who looks good, knows how to talk, Uh, is money, it has lots of resources Um, I mean I I certainly like to think that that picture is true that like the masses just don't appreciate what the philosopher has to bring I also sometimes wonder though um, that it it doesn't always seem to be the the masses fault that that there, there is something about the philosophical disposition that pulls people out into to ponder really technical, esoteric, obscure, obscure kinds of topics, and um, and away from 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 practical matters, and and maybe it's the case like I you know I don't know if you all watch The Good Place. The oh NBC yeah, I love the I love the Good Place, which is every philosopher, especially moral philosophers' favorite show. Um, But one of the main characters is a philosopher, uh, a Kant scholar, and, and, you know, and he's the stereotypical philosopher, incredibly learned, but also indecisive, impractical. Um, and, And there just doesn't seem to be something about the philosophical disposition that pulls people into obscurities in that way. But. But maybe what we can say about those people is that they're not, uh, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, like true philosophers, genuine philosophers, who who wouldn't be pulled off into such obscurities, but can um, deduce the first principles and then figure out how to, how to apply them.
1: Well, and in another part of the dialogue, you know, Socrates says that these sorts of people with these sorts of dispositions, you pretty much have to make them rule a community. Uh, you know, they would prefer to be thinking about the true and the good and the beautiful, uh, which, frankly, you don't have a whole lot of time to do when you're dealing with trade guilds and military discipline and economics mm. and all of these sorts of things, right? Uh, Now, I think that a a more modern critique, and I think it's one that we should take into account, is that when people with grand ideas do actually seize power, and we've seen this happen a few times in the 20th century, to be sure, but before that as well, uh, what you end up with is people think that the boundaries of their capacity to imagine the world are the boundaries of the world, and so anything that doesn't fit within those boundaries of their own imaginations there is a historical tendency uh, to become murderous with that power because they want to eliminate those things that don't fit their ideas, right? I mean, this is the uh, classic you know, critique of all kinds of modern totalitarianisms, right? You have this grand idea about how society should work and anything that keeps society from working the way that you want it to work, you destroy, right? Uh, and now, I, I don't think that... Plato as a writer or Socrates as a character, you know, has the capacity to imagine a modern, you know, totalitarian state with gasoline engines and radio communications. And I don't think that's a shortcoming of him as a writer. Uh, but I do think that it's a, a set of questions that we have to face on this side of the 20th century that Plato doesn't have to face that side of the 4th century BC.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's
0: he's dealing with a, a different set of problems. Um, and, you know, haunting the whole book, I mean, maybe almost literally on every page are, are passing allusions and references to what's going to happen to Socrates. Um, you know, all of this talk about philosophers corrupting the youth and worries about the masses is um uh the abuse of power people not respecting the true philosopher the powerful wanting to get rid of them you know all of that all of that is lurking in the background um but but you know but it's but it's interesting and um uh, we'll get to a lot of those more modern issues in a second But, um, you know, there's just this way in which, like, the whole system for Plato and Socrates turns on them finding these godlike figures who are perfect in wisdom and virtue. And we're just going to give it all to them, and they're going to solve their problems, and they're going to both be... You know geniuses, philosophers of the highest order who can sit in their ivory towers and contemplate the universal truths, and then they're gonna come down from their towers and then they're gonna actually institute it all right the the dialogue begins,
1: yeah, the dialogue begins with
0: the line "I went down, yeah, right and um and you know and and it's it's interesting because socrates himself socrates so he he obviously is the paradigmatic philosopher. And um, well, I guess it's in this book. He, I mean, he even talks about how um, his 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 daimon, his guardian angel, as it were, has always saved him from engaging in politics. You know, so Socrates himself isn't the man to do this work. And um, the the whole thing turns on finding these godlike rulers. And uh, one wonders if, if any of them can really be found.
1: Although he does have checks on that, right? I mean, because, first of all, there's a plurality of philosopher rulers, right? He always talks about them in mm-hmm. the plural. Yeah,
0: there's that's a, right.
1: There's never a single absolute ruler. And then beyond that, I mean, you have some very, uh, I want to say, absolute checks on what they can do and what they can't do, right? Right. Uh, they cannot own any property. They cannot accumulate any wealth. They cannot live in private dwellings, right? They're going to raise all their children in Christ. Yes, they cannot have private families, even, right? So there's no dynast- dynastic succession uh, struggles possible, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 like I said, I mean, I am torn because uh, I do have a hunch that these things would do some work. Uh, but I, I also share Plato's own pessimism which I won't steal from whoever's doing book nine. That'd be me. Oh, that's you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I won't steal Jay's thunder then because Plato is, is I think supremely pessimistic about Mm -hmm. how well that's going to work. And I'll let Jay talk about that when time comes.
2: Well, thank you.
0: Yeah. So there is this, this kind of this paradox of like, well, this is what it would look like. This is how we could do it. But, but it ain't going to happen. Um, what, you know, one more question along the lines, along those lines, is that, I mean, he well understands that the kind of philosopher king who he's describing, they don't grow on trees. We're only going to get them if we give them this incredibly specialized education, which kind of runs into this view of his that... Um, so much of what makes people good or bad is wholly on the basis of their education. Um, I, sub- you know, I suppose there's both nature and nurture because there certainly is this sense that like some people just have these particular kinds of gifts. And when we discover that in them, then we're going to like pluck them at an early age and get them into the system and train them up. But um, certainly there's this incredibly strong view that... Um, vice just arises because people get the wrong kind of the wrong kind of education um and that we could solve all of these problems just by instituting the right the right kinds of systems you guys have thoughts on that um well reading it as an american
1: i mean i i'm always conflicted about this part ed because on one hand constitutionally uh if you read article 2 of the constitution which you should Anyone over the age of 35 can be elected president. But historically, in fact, uh, you know, a, a grossly disproportionate number of our U.S. presidents have at some point been educated at Havid. So, I mean, you know, we have some strange hybrid of this system where you are groomed into positions of rulership and then a formal principle that says that, you know, by definition, uh, it's open to any citizen uh, mm-hmm. so I, I you know uh, I, I, I have a hunch that if you studied history carefully enough as I nod towards our historian on this episode <laughs> you could probably find those kinds of contradictions all over the place could you not oh, Jay yeah. the,
2: you, there I, of course you'd have to ask me on the spot and so now every single example has flown from my mind but yeah you're right <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's it's okay.
0: Yeah, but so I mean it's it's true that like a disproportionate number of our political leaders come from the small circle of elite institutions. The same is true of like leaders in business, you know, I it's a big part of a lot of famous CEOs uh Narratives that like they were at Harvard, but then they dropped out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think of that blood company. The um,
2: oh, yeah, I know uh, what you're talking of, about.
0: What, what's her name, Elizabeth? Something part of her narrative is that you know she was at Sanford, but so it you know it's certainly the case that these elite educational institutions. Um, play a role in the shaping and training, right? but it's and 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 that narrative nods towards this view that like, oh well these these are the best and brightest, these are the smartest, right But in fact, what's really driving that it's not the fact that they are in fact the best and brightest, but the fact that like these places are the avenues of power and privilege, and it is there, and it's the power and the privilege that is getting them into these into these positions. It's not the fact that they're genuinely wise.
2: It's almost self-perpetuating. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a sort of court
1: uh, in the medieval sense that produces them, right? It's education, to be sure, but it's also connections. It's also, uh, you know, experiences that you have in the presence of power. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can definitely see uh, Plato's critique here uh, that a system like that is eventually going to become uh, self-serving. It's going to become accumulative. Uh, Pleonexia, for some reason, that Greek word just came to my mind. Uh, I I don't know why Greek words come to my mind. It's been a long time since I've studied it. Uh, But, you know, his big critique, I think, is absolutely right that these things become self-perpetuating. You know, his uh, solution Uh, that we, you know, abolish the traditional family for this guardian class entirely, uh, and that we, uh, you know, do a sort of universal, uh, I don't even know what to call it, uh, you know, screening of capacity in order to determine who's got the best uh, chops, Mm -hmm. so to speak, to be rulers, strikes me as, you know, just, uh, well, I mean, basically as something that's going to lead right back to what you're trying to solve, right? Uh, so th- this is another one of those places, and I say this often when I teach this book, or when I teach any of Plato's dialogues, really, is that he is the master of coming up with the right question, but then when he tries to answer him, he's very limited by his moment.
0: Mm. Right. It's Gattaca, kind of what he's describing.
1: I'll say more about that, Ed. That's a good parallel.
0: Well, I, we're, we're going to pluck the best and brightest. We're going to identify them at a young age, the people who just have the natural gift. And then we're going to give them this very specific kind of education and training. Um, there's, the, there's the nice metaphor that, uh, that Socrates uses about seeds being in the right soil and they'll grow in the right way. But if you put them in the wrong soil, they'll grow in these horrible ways. Um, but it, but it's, that, it's that kind of a view. That, um, you know, so so there is, there's a little bit of a paradox. Like on the one hand, there's this incredible kind of pessimism that will ever get it. On the other hand, there's this view that oh, we just need to put the right system in place. And, um, I mean, he's well aware and acquainted to what Christians would call sin, but it's never original, I guess you could say
1: for him. Right, it's always systemic. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, I mean, this is where I think that uh, Karl Popper has done us a grand disservice associating Plato's Republic with totalitarianism because if you look at you know the proposals that he actually sets forth, uh, he already has uh, to use a, a very anachronistic phrase, checks and balances built into it, right? Uh, so the idea is if someone stops exhibiting the properties of a philosopher, philosopher meaning person with a certain moral disposition, we have mechanisms for removing them from those positions, right? But even then, uh, he's very pessimistic, and I'm going to keep resisting the temptation to steal from Jay here. Sorry, Jay.
2: It's okay. If if, if it slips, it's fine. <laughs>
0: well, um we've obviously been making a lot of allusions and references to the relevance, of all of this to contemporary politics. So maybe we should just jump in and, and, and talk about it. Um, uh, Nathan, well, you, you raised this earlier. You were interested in this temptation to read our moments, post truth disposition into Plato's critiques. Um, um, But, um, you know, what are the ways in which, and, and obviously the similarities between the issues that Plato is talking about are, um, very relevant to our own, but like, you know, what, uh, what are some ways in which our current situation is similar to and different from the kind of dynamic that Plato is talking about between, um, experts in the masses.
1: Well, well, one of the interesting things is that Plato is writing in the wake of, even if not in the midst of, uh, a much more thoroughgoing democracy than ours, where things can shift much more rapidly. Uh, Ours is a relatively stable two-party system, and I say relatively stable because in the age of Trump, who knows what will happen next week, right? But, uh, you know, What's interesting about our moment that is very different from Plato's moment is that there's not a thoroughgoing suspicion of experts, but there's always a suspicion of the other party's experts, right? Uh, When party affiliation becomes sort of the chief identifying marker, uh, then you can tell who the Democrats are because they are suspicious of what economists have to say, and you can tell who the Republicans are because they are suspicious of what the climate scientists have to say. And each one will accuse the other side of ignoring uh, what the experts say, right? I mean, you know, all during the George W. Bush years, I remember very well uh, because I'm old enough to remember the George W. Bush years, uh, you know, the constant refrain and complaint from the right was these Democrats, you know, should just listen to what the experts say and by that they mean the economists. Uh, But now uh, we actually had, you know, I, I feel like within the first month of Trump's inauguration, a march for science. And, you know, what it seemed to be protesting was that the other side wasn't heeding what experts had to say, right? Uh, so it's interesting, you know, I, I always like to speculate, you know, I look at my uh, WWPD What Would Plato Do bracelet here, uh, and, you know, I wonder uh, what he would make of the fact that the suspicion of experts is not pervasive, but it is instrumental, it is weaponized. Uh, And I I have a hunch that there'd be another dialogue that Plato would write there, but I, I wouldn't want to try to write it myself. Jay, what would you add to that?
2: I would add to it, I think that we also see, as in Socrates' day, people are arguing over what actually constitutes the public good. We see that Especially with um, in recent weeks, with President Trump saying, you know, he can't be, he can't be criticized or he can't be impeached because he's done all of these good things for the country. And we can debate if those things are actually true or if they themselves are good. But it comes back to that idea: is is someone who is themselves of low moral character capable of doing something good for the city?
1: Right. And then, I mean, if I can just tag onto that, Jay, I mean, there's also the question of what constitutes moral character, right? right? Because, I mean, there is a sort of uh, Nietzschean strain that's always been there in people like Rush Limbaugh, uh, but who has, you know, which has, and I'm going to borrow one of Michael Farmer's metaphors here and say it has metastasized uh, in, you know, the current sort of populist right uh, to where moral virtue becomes the willingness and the ability Uh, to exert one's will uh, on one's opponents, right? So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not that uh, Trump is, and I use Trump, but, I mean, there's other examples as well. Uh, It's not that, you know, Trump is good because he's willing to do terrible things for the sake of good ends. The willingness to be terrible is itself the moral virtue, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, I mean, the same thing, you know, uh, and I'm going to get in trouble here because every time I, I note that, you know, people pick up each other's bad habits. I get accused of moral equivalence, but so be it. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence, I think, that the grand heroes of the other faction two years later were a group of young congresswomen uh, who were willing to, you know, say some things that I'm not going to say on the Christian Humanist Radio Network <laughs> uh, about the other side, right? right. So, I mean, uh, I won't say that both of them are inherently bad that way, but I'm going to make a platonic move here and say that uh, the worst habits uh, that we detect in the other side uh, tend to get picked up by our own side, but then we justify them saying, if we don't do this, then we fall behind in this arms race. And, you know, uh, it, it all comes back to, you know, something like what Thrasymachus was saying, that justice becomes merely what serves power, right? And Socrates, I think it's interesting, uh, stands aside from that, right? Uh, And again, he's not working with a two-party system necessarily, unless there's a part of Athenian history that I'm missing here. Uh, But he wants to say that there should be something transcendent here. There should be something beyond the simple grasping for power, uh, the simple ability to exert one's will in the community. There should be a reference to eternal things. And again, I, I am conflicted, Jay, because I always want to say yes, that should be our aspiration, and Plato's critique is right on target. But man, as soon as he suggests something concrete to address it, I, I I'm I'm off that train. Right. You?
2: Oh, I'm the, I'm the same way. I think that he like you said earlier, he asks the he asks good questions, but it's almost as if he doesn't put his own thoughts through his own process. Yeah, I
1: think that's right. And it might be just because he hasn't had time to. He's, you know, the character Socrates, maybe not the writer Plato, is coming up with these things on the fly, right? Right. Uh, So, I mean, you know, my way of reading that is that Republic was never meant to propose good answers. It was meant to propose answers. And then the role of the text as it, you know, is disseminated and as it travels and as it goes out into the world is to encourage us, the readers, uh, to offer our own critiques and then take the next step dialectically and come up with more answers.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I th- I think I want to defend Plato a little bit on this. By all <laughs> um, means do, Ed. And and so part of it is situating it in the particular political situation of the day. So it, it is a democracy, but it but but not of the kind that we would look at and say it's a democracy, right? So it's it's ruled by, um, vote and consent. But who's in the room, right? It is only a certain kind of aristocratic male. Oh, um, to be
1: sure I, I and Ed, what I was trying to get at is not that it was a pervasive democracy in that more people got to vote. That's absolutely not true. and I thank you for that correction, but rather that it's a lot more fluid. Because, I mean, at least in the histories that I read, because the Assembly doesn't really have parties in the way that, you know, the Roman Senate and certainly the U.S. Senate has parties, you have a lot more possibility of radical swings from day to day.
2: Sure.
0: Sure.
1: There's no gridlock, in other words. (laughs) And maybe we need some.
0: (laughs) I suspect, though, that it was, was, you know, that it broke up into these coalitions around... Certain certain kinds of leaders, maybe in that way, it's more like a parliamentary government in which you have like lots and lots of different different parties and factions. I guess that's true,
1: but, and I, and I guess now to think about it, Ed, most of the histories I've read are by people who don't much like democracy, like Herodotus, and so are going to highlight you know the the ways that democracy is insane.
0: Mm. But for sure, you know, whatever they decide, that's that's what they that's what they decide but but the point is that like um it's i don't know a few hundred people or maybe a few thousand people who are in a room in a hall in a forum you know debating debating these things and um socrates in this book spends a lot of time talking about whether this is possible or not and he takes pains to argue that it's it's not impossible it's not right, possible right. it's not possible but it's not impossible um and you know and I do think that there's a way in which the shift from their present political situation isn't so distant from the kind of situation that he imagines and so what is it i mean you know, maybe they it, it would be difficult to institute the full system of education that 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 he imagines. But in general, he's imagining a kind of an epistemocracy, right? Um, that the learned and the wise are going to ascend to power, and people will defer to them. He did what on his democracy? uh epistemocracy, the you know a, a knowledge uh, rule by the knowing
1: i know it. i'm sorry that that was a joke from the movie cars
0: oh no, i didn't i totally didn't get that and i've seen that movie that's
1: all right that's all right it was it was a dumb joke and
0: i shouldn't have made it carry on sir <laughs> um we well, you you get my point and so i i'm certainly a lot of the specific institutions that he has in mind to put all in this in place are um really specific and weird in some ways, but a little bit more generally i i mean he's talking about a system of rule a, a technocracy right of of experts um very rarefied class of experts i guess but but you know that idea isn't so that generalized version of the idea isn't isn't so crazy um but you know do but do we want even that? You know, doing we well, yeah, system. And, and,
1: and again, I always keep reaching for American parallels, Ed, but I mean, this reminds me of sort of the, the fit that, you know, I hear pitched uh, whenever a politician, whether it be Donald Trump or whoever else, uh, Elizabeth Warren, let's pick, you know, one of the DNC candidates, uh, proposes something that is against the Washington consensus, right? Mm-hmm. There's this notion out there, at the very least, in our rhetoric. Uh, That, you know, there are certain ways that those who know stuff know that government should be run, and anyone who, you know, defies those things uh, is partaking in a kind of destructive madness. Uh, Jay, do you see that happening as well?
2: Yeah, a little bit. I was wondering if we're going to go with rule by the knowing, who are we going to classify as knowing? Say a little bit more about that. Um, again, if we're going to be talking about the difference of ideas within the city, what one person, n- quote, knows might be something different than what another person knows. And I guess to go to the current situation, we could put in climate change or something like that. Um, you know, Are we going to judge them based on what they think or believe about one particular area? Are we going to pass some kind of, you know, I, in the... In book six, he talks about passing the philosophers through many uh, all kinds of tests at various stages of life to make sure that they are keeping up with the with the ideal of a philosopher. Would we do the same kind of thing? Like, you can't run for president unless you you know pass this standardized test or something like that.
0: Well, yeah. Um, h- how about this a little bit more? generalized version of that like do do we want to elect political representatives on the basis of their expertise
2: okay well we say based on their expertise and i have to ask what what are we going to classify as expertise expertise in politics in running a business in building a house because there's there's many different kinds of expertise what one person is an expert in is not what someone else is
0: Yeah, good. And nobody can be an expert on everything. So, you know, we're going to want to assemble a coalition of people who know about all of that stuff. But in general, other things being equal, the primary qualification for leadership is expertise. Is that what we want? I think, again, this
1: is one of those places where Plato raises an interesting question, right? Because he... Uh, he doesn't only suggest, I mean, he actually lays out a virtue called wisdom, right, Sophia, uh, that, you know, is the ability to see how the parts of a large system fit together, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, that that does strike me as, you know, something that we still look for in public officials, right? I mean, I, I, can, I, I can't just imagine, but I can remember uh, critiques of political campaigns that say that they are so focused on this one thing that they ignore how how it will affect these other things right So I mean something resembling uh, Plato's Socrates' notion of wisdom I mean seems to be operative in the way that we do politics even now. Yeah yeah so I mean it, it is expertise but it is also intellectual virtue. And I don't think that's gone away. I mean, has it?
0: Um, I mean, hasn't it?
1: Well, here's the thing. I mean, what you have, and again, I mean, this is where I think the two-party system really is the most interesting variable here, uh, is that you have two sides, each accusing the other of lacking wisdom because they are so focused on what they regard as a secondary matter, right? Uh, So you have you know, the critique of the businessman president uh, as someone who is so focused on cutting deals and, you know, making uh, productivity rise that he ignores the other elements of the bigger picture that are more ultimate than productivity and money. On the other hand, you have uh, the critique of, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders uh, as someone who is so focused on the goal, on this abstract goal of economic Uh, equality uh, that he ignores the actual empirical variables uh, that actually govern the system and would shipwreck there's a callback for you uh, that would actually shipwreck uh, any of his actual plans right so it strikes me that I mean you know whether or not we want to say that if you know Jay Ed and Nathan were the judges who decided you know who gets to be the guardian of the US we might not find wisdom in any of these leaders I think what we can say is that in their public rhetoric, they still make appeals to something that resembles Plato's notion of wisdom.
0: Um, You know, I, I want to push back a little bit on your way of characterizing the situation. I mean, it might be the case that... Um, that I mean, I, I don't know if Bernie Sanders... Bernie Sanders would disagree with your characterization of the situation. And he, you know, he would say, "No, no, no. I'm I'm fully deferring to and my view is informed by the best experts. They're just different than your experts."
1: Oh, I think um, you're right. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. What I was talking about is the rhetoric of the way that we critique candidates for
0: political office. Yeah, you know, I there's a way that's certainly true. I, I feel like the dy- dynamic these days is, is different than what it used to be. And this just goes back to what you were saying, which I think I agree with. There was a way in which not so long ago, politics was about dueling experts. Um, our experts say that we should do this. Your experts say we should do that. But now, you know, Trump's politics certainly aren't about that dynamic, aren't about that dynamic at all. It's about this, this, um, populism. And this is critique of elitism and the institutions of elitism that pant, that peddle fake news. And... You know, and, and so you need me, and who am I? Well, I certainly don't claim to be an expert or a scholar or a man of learning, but I am a strong man and I'm gonna fix things. Um and I mean I think you're right about what you were saying earlier about virtue. There's a way in which everybody recognizes that Trump is not a man of virtue.
1: Well, he's a man he's a of Machiavellian of- virtue. Well, no, 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 no. yes, yeah, so, 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 yeah. that's, so that's right. Yeah, let's be careful and about that because, I mean, he didn't get elected because of a lack of virtue. He no, got no, no, elected no,
0: no. because of a lot of a certain kind of virtue. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly, th- yeah, that is exactly the point that I want to make. And so some Christians will, will sort of talk about how, well, you know, he's not, we know that he's not a virtuous man, but um, God can work through imperfect people. So you hear that rhetoric a lot, but, but, and, but, but I think in fact, a lot of people do think that he's a person of virtue for all of the reasons that you talk about. And I think people like, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., for example, I mean, I, I think he admires that kind of strong man virtue and that his enthusiasm for Trump actually isn't begrudging at all. Um, it's actually enthusiastic because i think he admires these these pagan or machiavellian or or Nietzschean right. strongman
1: or, Thrasym, or thrasymachus virtue i can't make him an adjective at the moment thrasymachian thrasymachian <laughs> thrasymachian yes well that's what we'll make it <laughs>
0: yeah um so you mentioned You mentioned this earlier, Nathan, um, lurking in the background here are a lot of very 20th century worries about totalitarianism and the dangers of wiping things, wiping the slate clean and starting and having a a fresh start.
1: Yeah, I actually want to hear Jay talk about this a little bit, because I do like having historians on, because they actually know history rather than pretending to, like I do. Um, Jay, I mean, it strikes me that this worry, I mean, has its roots in the French Revolution, and specifically in Napoleon Mm -hmm. for the modern era. I mean, are these worries there before Robespierre and Napoleon come along?
2: Well, I would think that the worries were there. The question would be, would we have such a clear example of them until until the French Revolution? And that's another area where I see it intersecting with, with today. I don't know how how online either of you are, but there's a large group of people who have, like, eat the rich as their tagline, or, you know, we're sharpening the guillotines, things like that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, It's it's really... Really, I don't know. It's odd, and I'm not quite sure how I stumbled into those circles. But it makes for interesting viewing and thinking. Did you learn nothing from from the French Revolution? This does not end the way you think it will. In a in what they think will be a socialist utopia. Um. Now I've distracted myself. So were the were the worries of of what there before Napoleon?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like, like I said, I mean, when I kind of cast my imagination backwards to see, okay, when does this become uh, a worry that's rooted in memory rather than a worry rooted in speculation? Oh, okay. It seems like Napoleon is the figure that people want to point to, right? Um,
2: you, Yeah, you could. I think that for us, that's what it would be. For others, it might be some, you know, in the Middle Ages, perhaps even uh, the collapse of Rome, or the establishment of Charlemagne's empire, or any of the other smaller empires you might want to pick out in in history. I think it was much more, much more localized, perhaps. We didn't have, shall we call it, a collective memory of the French Revolution, but because the French Revolution, f- at least for us, is one of the first modern revolutions that was publicized, that was almost... Um, you know, we might even say it was known around the world as it was happening, rather than being Yeah, in newspapers. Right, right, rather than being passed down through oral tradition. That's why it stuck around.
1: I got you, I got you. And I guess, Jay, the, the follow-up question I would a- ask then uh, is, you know, I mean, one of the things that I understand about Robespierre and Napoleon is that you know far more so than Charlemagne, their impulse was to Wipe the slate clean, you know. In some cases, create a new calendar. Oh yeah. Certainly reorganize the military. Especially uh, with Robespierre, it seems like they were yes. they were clean slate kinds of people. Yes. More so than their antecedents were. Is that a fair characterization?
2: Definitely for Robespierre, I'm of mixed, of mixed feelings about Napoleon, um, because as much as he did that, we might look at it and say, yes, he was a military dictator. He actually did keep some of his promises, and there was a short period of time that I would actually argue that he really did what was best for France before he went completely off the rails and declared war on the rest of Europe.
1: Okay, it might be that I'm getting too much of my Napoleon lore from Tom Jefferson.
2: Yeah, um, I, I benefited from a college class with a with a self-defined Francophile, loved, loves Fran- Fra- France and French history loved Napoleon so maybe I'm a little bit I guess I'd say biased or maybe prejudiced I always get the two too confused but I have a soft spot for Napoleon and I'm willing to forgive him perhaps a little bit more than I ought
1: fair enough keep rolling
2: um but definite definitely with Robespierre and you see he was he was trying to to literally wipe the slate clean as you said with a new calendar not just with new with new months but he tried to totally rework what class what was classified as a month what was classified as a week redid all of the national holidays um instituted a, started in year right, one right, he? yes um instituted a new national religion or what he attempted to be a national religion uh the I think it was either the cult of pure reason or the cult of the supreme being there was both of them around that time um New system of measurement, which I believe ended up being the metric system. So, anyway, that came out of the French Revolution. Um, but yeah, he totally tried to redo everything, and it really didn't work for France. Most of it made things worse, which ended up giving rise to Napoleon.
0: Huh? Yeah, but things turned out okay in the
2: end. Did they? <laughs> I, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing. I am. I mean, I might get into some trouble with, with. Some Francophiles, or if any of our listeners are listening in France, but I don't know that it worked out that well. I mean, do you call a hundred years? Yeah, do, expect- do you call a hundred years of near civil war and sometimes actual civil war success? And then you've got World War One and World War Two. If they hadn't had been fighting for those previous hundred years, could they have resisted Germany? Would they? Anyway, then we're getting into what if history and I don't like doing that.
1: Well, and in actual history, I mean even in 2019 from what I read, uh it's not so great to be in Paris if you're a Muslim.
2: No. And and even then, again, I don't read I don't read French, so I'm not up on the, you know, I can't read what they're actually saying. I can only read translations, yeah. but taken, but when they w- when they elected Macron, it almost appeared as if they believed they had elected Someone who was close to this philosopher ideal, someone who was who was young, who was charismatic, and who had the right ideas. And now he's proven to be a disappointment. To to some of them.
0: You know, it's interesting <clears throat> the extent to which that kind of person of learning, whether you can run as a person of learning in the United States. Um, Do you think depends Obama on your region. Well, I no, I I think with Obama it was uh, I think his his learnedness was a part of it, but it was more about hope. Um, yeah, I can and, see that. I can see that charisma. I, I would say the same thing going back to Clinton. Uh, you know, I think Clinton as Rhodes scholar, as policy wonk, that was a part of his, of his identity, but 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 he didn't he he didn't run strong on that. It was a little bit more like. Um, good old boy, charismatic leader. Oh, sure, it was Bubba who played saxophone badly on Arsenio Hall. Well, yes, yes. And, um... I... Um... I think that, um... That type just doesn't play in the United States. That could no. be. That could be. I'll grant that. Um. But in any case, uh, I was gonna say one more. Oh, but uh, so on the the wiping the slate the slate clean. I mean, it's interesting because like that. It's interesting to read that. Um, to literally read that in Book Six of the Republic, because because um, Plato uses that language or something very very akin to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the wiping the slate. Clean impulse seems like such a characteristically modern impulse in a lot of ways. Uh, But so here's another, what about the United States as an example of wiping the slate clean? That
1: one's more interesting to me because there's such a I'm going to say an idolization of the Roman Republic there. That I see the early American Republic as very much taking a classical uh, paradigm or template. Uh, Jay, am I am I overplaying that angle?
2: Perhaps. Um, I think that there's a fair mix of idealization of Rome, but also you have to mix in the Enlightenment philosophy of the 1700s, and 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 that as well, because that this is actually one of the the areas that i just got done teaching this week to to some of my high schoolers was the uh the critical period and setting up the constitution and how in some ways it was modeled on rome but in some ways not because we did offer a wider degree of of representation than rome did and even though our our voting citizenry wasn't what it is today in 2019 it was still fairly progressive for the era
1: point taken point taken
0: um, well, we have been going on for some time now and are probably getting close to the point at which we should wrap things up. We haven't talked at all about the metaphysical issues related to the form of the good, though Um. So Socrates gives two very famous uh, metaphors to refer to the nature of the form of the good. The form of the good figures is, a, is an important thing because it is the most important thing. It is the it is the ob- the most important object of the fall fo- of the philosopher's inquiry. It lies behind the form of justice. It in fact lies behind everything. And so, to start to unpack what the nature of the form of the good is, Socrates deploys two metaphors of of the sun as both the cause of knowledge and the object of knowledge. As well as a very complicated metaphor involving a line, um, but maybe in some ways we can push that off since those issues get more fully discussed in Book Seven and the very well-known allegory of the cave. Um, Nathan, you were you were bothered at the the division of the books and the way in which um, those discussions get cut off between Book six in
1: book seven. Yeah, and that's uh, my idiosyncratic uh, sort of peeve, because I've been teaching uh, since 2006 uh, Robin Waterfield's translation of this dialogue from Oxford World's Classics, and he divides things up into chapters by subject matter instead of into scrolls by how much text you can fit on an ancient scroll, which is more sensible in my mind, but uh, you know, for that reason, he groups those three parables together Uh, But I will say that, you know, having to read the parable of the sun without immediately turning to to the parable of the cave, it does strike me that uh, this is a mode of philosophical reflection that I think can bear some good fruit. Because if we think about, uh, and of course, I mean, you know, Aristotle a generation later gives it a technical vocabulary and calls this the final cause or the telos of a thing. Uh, what Plato's getting at here is that we can uh, we can say true things about any given entity and maybe even the most true things about a given entity if we start with the question what is it good for, right? So I mean for instance uh, you know we can talk about uh, the way that Thrasymachus does uh, the mechanics of how you actually manipulate people in a democracy and how you actually convince people to cede power to you and how you can, you know, uh, assert your will in the community. But what Socrates wants to do is take a step back and say, yes, but why do we have communities in the first place? What are we after? If we don't have a notion of that, then you can talk mechanics with Thrasymachus all day long, but you're still not really going to get at why you would want power in the first place. So I mean I I I actually think that you know this is one of the most helpful uh philosophical tools that Socrates gives us in this part of the dialogue.
0: Yeah, I mean it really is quite a remarkable claim that real political leadership is is going to require not just knowledge about politics and how political institutions work and economics and public policy and 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 all of that it's going to require going all the way back to the most basic and abstract philosophical principles um that's quite a remarkable claim in a lot of ways a really radical kind of a claim
1: and again this is where and jay you can correct this because mm-hmm. i need you to correct me when i try to do history but this is where i see you know the preamble to the us constitution as instructive, right? Because, I mean, you know, we the people of these United States and the states get listed in order to, and then you get a list of what I see as these sort of abstract big picture mile-in-the-sky aims that, you know, in the articles of the Constitution, we actually get powers delineated to the Congress and to the President and the courts in order to pursue those things. But those are always for the sake of those big picture goods that we see in the preamble. Um, is that basically how you read it, Jay?
2: That's how I read it, though. And again, in the interest of full disclosure, I, you know, and there's a little piece of my heart that agrees with Patrick Henry when he said, who who authorized Congress to speak of we the people instead of we the states? Ah,
0: (laughs) well played, sir. They signed it. That's what I would say. True enough. True enough. Okay, well, with all of that said, we should probably wrap things up. Um, you have been listening to The Cork Curriculum. It is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. If you would like to learn more about the Christian Humanist Radio Network and all of the shows therein, please visit our website at christianhumanist.org or check out the network Twitter account, which is at chradionetwork. Uh, and on behalf of of nathan and jay uh let me thank everyone for listening and this is where i would normally give our tagline (laughs) but um is there a tagline tagline, do the tagline i don't think there is so give the city of man one render unto render unto plato those things that are plato's and render unto i don't know the form of the good (laughs) the form of the good thanks for listening